Hey, everybody. My name is Andrew Krauss, InventRight co-founder, and we're going to be doing a full hour of question and answer today. I see a bunch of you have already started typing in your questions. The focus of InventRight is on licensing your products. So that is basically renting your idea to a big company and then paying you royalties. And they handle the money, the workforce, and the distribution. Um, you guys are welcome to ask questions about venturing, which is just a fancy way of saying make it and sell it yourself. That's not what we do. So we focus mostly on licensing, but I can always illustrate the differences between the two. Um, if some of you could type in yes, that you can hear me, that's great. Just to make sure my mic is working. Uh, that would be great. While we're waiting for some of you to say yes, so that I can confirm you can hear me. Um, I want to say that this is a little disclaimer. Anything I advice I give you today, tonight, where whatever time it is, wherever you are, um, is not to be considered legal advice. Please seek the services of, of an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. I'm giving a general business advice, and please consult an attorney before you do anything if you're concerned. Okay, great. You guys can hear me. Um, so, uh, let's just jump in here, and if you guys want to type in your questions into the the chat, questions box, whatever the hell they call it on here. I guess they call it a chat on YouTube. Um, just give you a little background. Um, InventRight has been around 20-plus uh, years, and we've been coaching inventory inventors. We have our students. We call our clients students. They license products all the time. We empower them to do so, guide them through from I have a thought in my head all the way through helping them close a deal and helping them with our negotiation coach and everything in between, which there's a lot in between, of course. Um, it's something that anybody can do. Um, you don't need to be a captive industry. You don't need to be an engineer. You don't need to um, have any background in business at all. And uh, to be honest with you, sometimes there's students that don't have a business background do better than the ones that do because the ones that do are arrogant sometimes, sometimes, not often. And they think, well, I, I'm, I know, I know, I've been in business forever. And it's like, uh, licensing's different. And they're not listening when we explain those differences to them. Whereas you got a plumber or a housewife, and they're like, yeah, just tell me what to do. Set me in place, I'll do it. And as long as they're action-oriented, they do quite well with it. So don't let anybody tell you that you need to be an expert at patents or you need to be an engineer or a professional um, product designer. If you're creative and you have new ideas for products, you have that creativity that a lot of people in corporations don't have, and they need you for that. Now, fortunately, they're really good at the rest of it. They're good at having the round of money to do all this. They're good at distributing the product. They're good at getting it into retail. They're good at manufacturing. They're good at all the boring, like bookkeeping stuff and accounting stuff and, you know, workman's comp and product liability insurance and getting things made and and not just getting products on shelves, but keeping them on shelves. So when you tap into that big company, you are that big company, but never underestimate your value as an inventor, as a creative person to show them that product that they weren't thinking of. OK. And, you know, some of their designers, they've been doing this forever. And so they get a little stale with their thinking. And you're bringing a fresh take to it. So never underestimate the value of what you're doing there. Um, and you might need not know how to do a lot of what they're going to do to run the business, but you don't need to, okay? Now, it's good to understand and respect what they're doing. So I'm not saying be disrespectful just because you're creative and sometimes they aren't. They're doing like most of the work, let's be honest, okay? So for you to get a royalty on every unit that they sell is a great deal, and that's called licensing. So let's jump in and do some questions here. Uh, Kevin said, hi, Andrew. I was wondering if you could talk on the end of the product's life cycle and how the inventors are informed that a company is winding down production and ceasing sales on that product. Well, hopefully you're staying in touch with your licensee. So some terminology, when you're the inventor, you're the licensor, O-R, licensor, and the license E is the company receiving and licensing the product from you. And so licensing is just a fancy way of saying rent or lease your idea. That's the way I would put it in layman's terms. So um, is every product, just because a patent is 20 years, and we have plenty of students that license stuff, and the contract obligates the company to pay you royalties regardless of patents or not quite often. Sometimes they'll make it dependent on a patent. But the people have this misperception, some, 
not all of you, that, oh, well, past 20 years, so I'll be earning royalties for 20 years. No, are you kidding me? How many products sell for 20 years? Some, not many. So it's going to depend on the product. Maybe it goes crazy for three years and you make a bunch of money. Maybe it's like a trickle for 15 years. And, you know, nobody wants to kind of knock your company off because it's kind of like niche, but it just keeps you earning you smaller royalties for like 15 years. It's all over the map. So is there going to be a point at which that product life cycle, the product just starts to sell less and less? And is there a point at which a company doesn't want to sell it anymore? Yeah, because it's not enough. It's not worth it. So, But that number is going to dramatically vary depending on um, the company and what they believe to be true. Some companies that I'm just saying random numbers here, guys, completely dependent on the company and the industry. But some of them are like, oh, yeah, once we start selling less than 50,000 units, if we've been selling it for a while, that's the, that's the cutoff. We're going to cut it. We're going to look for another product for the product line. You know, they're always looking for new products for the product line. And others, it's 200,000 units. And others, it's 10,000 units. It depends. Is it a 99-cent product? Is it a $500 product? It's all relevant. But there is a cutoff point there. Now, with our students, we do not let them sign contracts unless there's outs of the agreement. You don't want them continuing to sit on the product. I don't care if they've been selling it for 15 years or selling it for five months. If they're not selling it anymore, you should get it back, in my opinion. Now, there might be nothing to do with it. Let's say they're selling it for 10 years and the product has started to go down and down and down in sales. Well, congratulations, you're in 10 years of royalties. And maybe other products came in the marketplace. And yes, the vast majority of the time when you're writing the contract right, they're going to hand it back to you if they decide not to sell it anymore. The question is, is there anything for you to do with it? There's other products are in the marketplace now. They're not selling it more than likely because it's not viable in the marketplace anymore. There's other better options. Um, and so you're not going to be able to relicense that. Now, maybe it's something else. Maybe they got bought out by another company. Maybe they started to change the focus of their company. In that case, they hand it back to you. Maybe you can relicense it to somebody else if they no longer want to sell it. But you have to have minimum guarantees and other performance clauses in the contract. But minimum guarantees, if they don't sell a certain amount every quarter, you can take it back. Very normal to have. Or there can be other methods of doing it too. So Kevin, you never know what the product life cycle is. Um, maybe you've decided, oh, well, you know, they're not doing well because they're not doing this and this and this. I know another company could do it. And they're like, we don't want it anymore. Here you go. Here's its back. And you could try to license somebody else. Maybe you evaluate and you're like, nah, there's this, this product's dead at this point. They've been selling it for 10 years or whatever it is. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. I think a lot of other people are probably thinking the same thing. But this delusion that your product will sell forever around the world in every country and every distribution channel is a complete and utter delusion. I mean, if a company is selling 200,000 units, amazing. You know what it would take for you to start your own business and sell 200,000 units a year? I mean, you're not even going to be able to do it as a one product company. You'd have to have a whole product line because retailers don't like one product companies. They're, they'll kick you the curb pretty quick because they want companies with lots of products. So now if you built your own business and you sold this one product and then they're like, well, what else you got? And you're like, I don't have anything. They're like, well, we're gonna, they're not saying this directly, but we're going to kick you the curb if you don't have other stuff. You're not worth dealing with with your one product. This is if you're selling it yourself. Now, what's really great about licensing is when they're into that particular retailer and they've got eight other products in that retailer, that retailer is loyal to that manufacturer. But you with your one product, if you try to get in yourself, they're not really loyal to you because you know, it's just harder to deal with too many vendors. So again, going back to what I said earlier, when you license to a big company, you are that big company and that's a beautiful thing. And I joke, I say this jokingly, you can have delusions of grandeur and it might be delusional for you to be able to do that on your own, but for that big company to sell 200,000 years, that's normal for them. So that's the beautiful thing about licensing, but products will not sell forever. It can vary dramatically from going like crazy for a couple of years and poof, just goes to zero or just trickles in for like 15 years or something. It's all over the map. Um, so hopefully that was helpful, Kevin. I was a very detailed answer that I hope all you appreciate. So thank you for the great question, Kevin. Um, uh, Fez says, can you please talk about software patenting? 
Well, you're already in the wrong mindset, Fez. You're not software patenting, you're licensing your software. So your focus is not patenting, it's licensing and renting your invention to a company to get royalties. I know I'm just splitting hairs here just so you get the mindset. So I'm not giving you a hard time. I'm just helping you get the right terminology so you're programming yourself appropriately. Um, I'm almost done with my product. Okay. And that's very different. So I'll talk about that. Still not sure if I should go with licensing or venturing on my own. Thank you. So um, Fez, if you've got a software product and you're almost done with it, whether you paid software developers to do this or you did it yourself, there's no difference between you licensing your software product or somebody licensing a kitchen gadget. Now that's because you either blew a bunch of money to do this or you're a software developer and you have the skills to do it. The problem is, which is not your problem, other inventors, they're like, I got this app idea. And, you know, everybody and their grandmother, including a lot of grandpas and grandmas, they have a lot of, they have loved their iPads. They're like, I got an app idea. It's like, do you have any clue what it takes to program an app? And so it the the app, the, the software geeks look at us, laymen, and whether you're grandma, grandpa, uh, plumber, housewife, Hey, you're even a business guy. And they're like, well, that's all great guy, but, or gal, but that's going to take like six guys a, in a room a year to program. Do you have any idea? And they're like, great idea. So the thing that a lot of people are fearful of, I don't find to be true in other industries, but I do find to be true quite often in software, which is, well, that's just an idea. And so inventors think they need to spend tons of money on patents and tons of money on prototypes. And you don't. It's like you could you could cobble together a new kitchen cutting board where it's in a different shape that it goes on the sink right and has a hole or you push the, the the veggies down after you you cut them up or something you know just I'm just giving a random product and companies like oh yeah we get that and they can manufacture and make it maybe you've got this crude prototype or no prototype at all it's just a virtual prototype you you can get away with that in so many industries but with the software. There's so much work to make this thing happen. Now, there are some apps that are super simple, but when you're not a software developer, you have no idea between what's really complicated and require massive amounts of work or something somebody could program in two weeks. And there are a few of those. Most of them are pretty complicated. Also, you need to realize that software, an app, is not an app. It's a service because it's something you need to continually modify and update and all that. So whether it's a free service or a paid service or whatever, it's really a service. So apps are more services than they are of anything else. So Fez, for you, um, developing, if you're a software developer, let's just say you are, doing a software product is really no different because you're not saying I got this idea of a software product. You're like, here it is, you know? And here's all the other, just like you do with physical products, here's the other products in space, here's my point of difference, here's my marketing. So what I would do, Fez, is I would try to license it first. You've already developed it. And then if you couldn't license it and you're up for venturing, I don't suggest people do this normally, but Fez has probably invested a lot of time and money here. Sometimes people go, well, I couldn't license it. It was my first product. So now I'm going to try to sell it myself. It's like, Why? You only spent 70 bucks on a provisional, a few bucks on a sell sheet. Why would you completely change your business model just because you couldn't license your first product and now spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to sell it yourself? And if you'd actually talk to somebody that's ever run a business and try to launch their own product, you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. And I see inventor after inventor um, that has, sorry, I got a text message. I got distracted. Um, I see inventor after inventor that that thinks like if I can't license it, then I'll just jump in and start my own business. And that's not really smart. If you are like, oh, I would, I'm up for running my business and I want to do that and I want to dump my day job and I want to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars or get other people to just to get started. I realize that companies don't like, retailers don't like one skew one product companies. But if I license that big company, they, they like dealing with them, but not with me. But if you want to fight tooth and nail and get your product in the stores, I'm not against that. I find most inventors don't want to do that. But when people get pissed because they couldn't license their first product and they go, well, I'm just going to sell it myself. It's like, are you a one trick pony? I mean, you're going to have more ideas. So I would rather that the inventor put it in the closet for like six months, pushed it out to all the same companies. I get our students licensing stuff all the time that way, all the time. 
that they they got a lot of non-specific no's, not at this time, not a right match for us. And then they sent it six months later. They focused on licensing another product. And that same company that said no is now showing interest because you got to realize a lot of times when they say no, they're not saying no to your product. They didn't want to give you a hint that they liked it because they don't want you to hound them. And they're just too busy with too many projects. And they said, not at this time, not a right match to give you these generic answers because they didn't want to give you an inkling because then you would never give up, right? But you sent it to them six months later and maybe out of 30 companies, like one, two months, two weeks earlier, their boss said, we need new products. And now they're looking at it closer where before they wouldn't. Most inventors would never, ever do that, but our students do. That's just one of many things that sets our students apart from others. So they've kept themselves busy with working on their product, and then they pushed out again because they really believe in it. So you can't license your first product, and you really believe in it, and they didn't give you reasons why not. Now, if five companies say it won't work because of this, and you can't fix that, five companies, not one, you're done with that project. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of times it's very, very normal to get a lot of non-specific notes, you know? Um, okay. So, uh, Stephen's sending me text messages. I'm getting distracted. I'm going to block that. <laughs> he was sending me a text message on something. Stephen's my business partner. Um, let's see. So, uh, do I recommend most inventors to work on apps or software products? No, Fez has developed his. He's invested in it or he's either invested time or a lot of money. So could you decide to venture it if you can't license that one? Absolutely, you could, Fez. You, you absolutely could, especially if you invested a lot of time and money in it. Because doing like a new kitchen cutting board and duct taping something together is not as much. It's like I just told you guys, developing software is incredibly intense and time consuming and costly. So um, just realize that. All right, so to do Born Ruthless to Andrew. Somebody's yelling Andrew at me, I don't know why. Um, <laughs> Latifa, uh, hi Andrew, it's Latifa from Toronto, welcome. Uh, Canadians are some of you, not like you heard, haven't heard that before, Canadians are some of the friendliest people in the world. Um, I had a few Canadians contest that, and I'm like, that hasn't been my experience. Uh, all the Canadians I've, I've talked to, I mean, I guess you get a few in there. They're a little off, but Canadians are really cool people. Uh, can you please tell me how to protect an idea when submitting through a sell sheet? Okay, you don't submit through a sell sheet. You submit a sell sheet to, and it's not even a company. And I love details. It's a marketing manager in a company. So when people go, the company rejected me. No, they didn't reject you. It was a marketing manager in that company. They're a person like you and me, which is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. They're not this nameless, faceless company. There was one person that looked at it and said no or yes. So when you're submitting your sell sheet, Latifa, you're sending that to a marketing manager in a company. That's probably what you meant. Do you need an NDA or do we ensure the company doesn't steal my ideas? So this is what I can say statistically. In the 20 years we've been doing InventRight, I've never had that I know of an InventRight student that has submitted then an idea to a manufacturer or a potential licensee. There's the companies that sell in the stores. You don't submit to stores. You submit to manufacturers that sell in stores. Um, and they got ripped off. Now, I've had a few company, a few inventors concerned about it. And I say, well, watch their website. Here's something you can say back to them if you're a little getting a weird vibe from them, not in a paranoid way, kind of put them on notice. You're going to keep moving forward with it. You've even filed additional intellectual property. So all sorts of little things you can do to put them on notice if you're, if you're a little wary. And I've never had one of those students come back and go, oh, it's on their website now. Like I've never had it happen. Okay. So thinking that that is the norm is, is not true. Now, have I ever met an inventor ever that has said they had an, a company rip them off or whatever? Yeah, I have. And a lot of them, when I talk to them, I'm like, whoa, like you're acting kind of wacky there, you know, but I've never had an event rights student. So a big form of protection is not an NDA. It's not a PPA. It's conducting yourself professionally. So let's say it's one of the 3% of companies that might consider knocking you off. That's just a random number, but that's my belief. In most industries, there's only like 3 or 4% of companies that would even consider it because it's a big liability. They're more afraid of you than you are of them. Um, but so let's say you're talking to Sally and she's a marketing manager. She's kind of cool, but eh, she's got this unethical CEO. His name's Bob. And he's kind of like, he's kind of a dick. Let's just say it. Um, 
And so she's like, she shows it to Bob and Bob's like, well, why, well, Sally, why should we pay this guy? You know, I, I, why we could just go around him. Right. And she's like, mm, well, you know, he's not like that wacky inventor from a year ago. Great presentation seems to understand intellectual property doing and saying all the right things. Bob, if we're going to go around somebody, she's like being nice to the sun ethical CEO. I don't think this would be the person to do it with. I think if we're going to do that, it might be that wacky guy from a year ago. This is going to be a liability for our company. They filed a, a patent. They filed a provisional. says patent pending, conducting themselves very professionally. They seem to know what they're doing. They're not like the average inventor. And that see, that's what happens when invent rights students, students that we've trained to reach out, that's how companies react to it. Because it's not because they see a big difference in what they're presenting, you know? And so my point is NDAs and provisional patents aren't as big a protection as conducting yourself professionally. And most of you wouldn't even like, I didn't even think that was a form of protection, Andrew, but I'm telling you it is. Now our students file a provisional patent application. So you can file one. We give our students software. It's called Smart IP. You can actually buy it separately on our website too. It's only 99 bucks and you pay the $75 patent office fee. That's what they charge you. We don't charge you that to file a provisional patent application. Okay. So if you, if you got, and you don't even have to say provisional patent pending, you say provisional, you just say patent pending on your cell sheet. You're putting them on notice. They can't look it up. They can't see it. So Latifa, our students use the provisional patent as protection. If you pay a patent attorney to file a provisional, it's going to cost you two grand, 2,500 bucks at least. And so you don't want to have to be doing that every time you come up with an idea. Spend 75 bucks on a provisional, use our software, go about it another way and pay the patent office 75 bucks. Okay. So this perception that you're going to get them to sign your NDA is you're going to be beating your head up against a brick wall. And like I said, with the disclaimer up front, anything I share with you today should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your attorney before we move forward on anything. So this is just my personal opinion and one thing that we train our students with a business outlook because if every company you ask to sign your nda imagine they're getting 250 ideas a month and every inventor has their own nda well this is what my attorney gave me and you're trying to shove it down their throat they need to, their legal team now you now you need to go to their legal team it's not the marketing guy going ah send it over we'll take a look at it it's now they got to send it over to the, the legal team to get that approved. They don't want to do that. And with most companies, that ain't going to happen. Some of them, some of them that are smaller, they're like, oh, send it over and they'll sign it. Not many. Okay. They won't do that. So if an NDA is going to be signed, it's going to be their NDA and they're going to send it to you. And that's easy for them because the attorney, their attorney approved it. They're like, this is the NDA either whenever people ask us to sign one that we'll do or we insist everybody signs it. So if they have an NDA, you want to read through it. You want to make sure it's cool. You want to make sure, because I've seen some nasty ones. It's not common. It says, we'll pay you a maximum of $5,000 for your invention during the over entire life, and you, you'll automatically give it to us if, you, if we want it. Or really messed up stuff like that. So you need to read through whatever their NDA is. And a lot of times it's not an NDA. It's a non-NCA, a non-confidentiality agreement. Now, a lot of times that's okay it, because it's basically saying, hey, whatever you have is whatever you have in the way of intellectual property. Whatever we have is what we have. So, you know, if you file the provisional patent, that's protecting you in whatever way that does and whatever we file. So we don't know what you're showing us yet. So we can't agree to keep it confidential. So sometimes if it's not really a true NDA, that's in my opinion, that's okay. But our students just file a provisional and they just try to get it into the marketing manager. And if they want you to sign their NDA, you go, yeah, great. I'd be happy to. But you read it. You make sure you're okay with it, the terms. If you're okay with it, a lot of our new students, they're like, oh, this, this sounds really nasty. I look at it, I'm like, no, that's normal. That's fine. You filed your PPA. What are you worried about? So again, anything I'm sharing with you is not legal advice. Consult your attorneys. But that's the way we handle it and invent right. And it has never bit one of our students in the butt. One day it will. But I mean, God, like if you want 100% assurance that nobody will ever take your idea under any circumstance, stick with your day job. Don't do this. But when I tell you over 20 years with students in 65 countries, I am personally not aware of an event rights student that had an idea stolen from a company that they presented to and the company just went around them and stole it. I, I have not experienced that.
Um, so let's see. Uh, Matt, hi, Andrew. I have a PPA and marketing material for a product. Contacted some companies. One answered with interest. They said they wanted more details in a meeting after they reviewed it. I sent them some more images of a product, but now they're not answering for more than two months. Sent follow-up emails about a month ago, but didn't answer. I'm guessing if they didn't like it, they would say so. Should I contact them again? So Matt, you've made a very common mistake, and I don't know all the details, but more than likely it was a mistake. You shouldn't have sent them more info. You intrigued them. You should have got on the phone with them. First thing you want to do when they get interest is not send them more info so they can make a decision on their own. You want them to look you in the face so they realize you're a human being. You're not a human being until you have that first phone call with them, or in some cases, Zoom meetings. Now you're a person. Now you can interact back and forth. So you did exactly what a lot of inventors do. You gave them what they asked for. You shouldn't have. You need to guide them through your process. And when we're when you're an event right student, you're guiding them through the event right process more than they're guiding you through theirs. Now, I'm not saying you don't answer their questions. You do, but you kind of redirect them. And a lot of their questions sometimes aren't going to move the deal forward. So you're going to kind of half answer it or not answer at all and say, I want to get on the phone. You should have got on the phone with them. Does that mean you shot yourself in the foot? Probably not. But I would reach back out to them, make sure you copy all that information and say, can we set up a quick time to call and see if they're interested? You waited way too long to follow up as well. So you made some mistakes there. But, you know, good on you, man. You reached out to companies. You did way more than most inventors ever do. Don't beat yourself up about that. But you did you do things in the right order to no, know you gave them exactly what they asked for and you shouldn't do that. I'm saying that to emphasize the point. You need to guide them through your process more than they guide you through theirs because most of the time they don't have a process. And you need to get on the phone with them very early on. You hooked them. They're interested. And they sent more info. Now they're making their own decisions. And maybe what you sent wasn't quite making sense to them. But if you would explain it to them on the phone or if you had an interaction, email sucks for that. Absolutely sucks. Interaction back and forth on a phone call would have been way better. And it shows they're really interested. So don't just send all your stuff on over to them. Do I think that they're ripping off your idea? Highly unlikely. We just talked about that extensively. So reach back out to them. You spent way too long. We have other inventors that like they're trying to email every day. It's like, oh my God, you're being such a pest. It's ridiculous. Don't do that. But you went too far the other direction. You were too laid back. You gave them too much time and you should have got on the phone with them. So hopefully that was helpful to you and everybody else. But good on you. Just keep pushing out. Don't sit there. And so like if you were just like focusing on them and like day by week went by and you weren't reaching out to other companies, big mistake. You should be pushing out. So now you're not pissed that this other company is not getting back to you. And then somebody finally gets back. And so you're always pushing, always pushing, pushing, pushing out. You know, you're never, you're never resting. You're never waiting for anybody, you know? Um, I mean, you are waiting, but you're keeping yourself busy with reaching out to more companies. Okay. Uh, Carlos, is there, if there are two inventors involved with separate LLCs, how are the details handled? I realize you're not an attorney. It doesn't matter, Carlos. Um, it doesn't really matter. Get the interest, man. I mean, if you have a partner and you both have LLCs, you're just trying to get interest. I think you should have a basic memo written up that says, look, we're working together to try to get the licensing deal. This is between you and your inventor friend. And, the, and we're doing a 50-50 split or we're doing a 30-70 split or we're doing whatever of whatever royalties come in. So then when you do the licensing deal, you can write up that contract however you want. Maybe they need to pay half to one LLC and half to the other, half to you, half to your friend that's an inventor. Um, so who cares if you don't get interest, right? But do you guys want to argue about it? You know, it, oh my God, no, I thought I was going to get 99% of the royalties and you're only going to get one. You should have a basic agreement written up. But I see no reason. Licensing agreements, it's not like patent law. There's rules. It's like you, whatever you two and the company agree to is okay. So if you want the company to pay half the royalties to one LLC and half to the other, they don't give a crap. They don't care. And so you're, you're overthinking that. But can people, two inventors, start to you know, have disagreements and stuff? If things aren't clear, make things very, very clear. We do that with our potential students. 
I love setting expectations. If somebody thinks they're going to make a million dollars overnight with no effort, I tell them, hey, ain't going to happen. What, what are you thinking? You know, and I, I go, I don't, I can't have you as a student. You're not real. This isn't real. Watch more of our videos, read our book, get real before we can guide you as a student. So setting expectations creates good relationships. And that's with potential licensees too. And it's with another inventor if you're partnering with another inventor too. So set those expectations and you'll be fine and your life will be good. And people won't be pointing the fingers at each other because everybody was clear from the get-go what the expectations are. Um, let's see, man. Uh, okay. John said, uh, thank you for these shows. Best part of my Mondays. Thank you. Um, Peter said, and I love it when you guys use the wrong verbiage and I, I'm not making an example of any of you because I'm, I'm helping you all set mindset. Peter said, how do you get them to pay for the patent? You don't. You're not selling your patent, Peter. You're selling the benefit of your product. You're always, always selling the benefit of your product. So whether it makes it easier to chop vegetables or easier to dig a ditch or whatever that benefit is, that's what you're selling. That's what they're selling. You're not selling them a patent. So don't try to, don't ever, ever tell a company, I want to sell you my patent, ever, ever. It's not a wrong mindset. So you have to have a good marketing piece that really shows them how they're going to sell it. And that's what you're doing. So if you do that, you'll be golden. If you talk about selling patents, biggest rookie move ever. Now, Peter, if you filed a provisional patent or you filed a patent, okay. Is that part of the package you're getting? Yeah, because you put patent pending on the sell sheet and you're letting them know, but that's not what you're selling. It's not. And a lot of companies, a lot of industries, they could give a rat's ass if you, I'm swearing a bunch today, I'm having fun with that. They, they really don't care. And others, they, eh, yeah, we want the window dressing, patent pending. And then others are really obsessed about it. Most of them are just in between or they're like almost on the end. Like we, we don't really care. We don't file patents for every product we work on. But the licensing agreement is holding them to paying your royalties regardless as if you have patents or not. So, so is the patent part of the benefit? Part of it, yes, and I'm emphasizing to make a point, you're not selling patents, you're selling the benefit of whatever the benefit of your product is. So if it makes it easier to cut vegetables, easier to dig a ditch, um, makes your car smell fresher, that's what you're selling. You're selling that marketing, right? And the benefit of that, of that product. Um, let's see. I don't know. I don't know, Patrick. I don't know who that is. Um, do you? So Peter says, do you need a video for your sell sheet? Some, we, I think we talked about this um, a bit ago. Uh, so some people just have a sell sheet. It's a one page PDF, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And it's a PDF, which is a document you can email. And as a big benefit statement, few bullet points, few pictures. Okay. So for some products, that's good enough. They look at it, they get it in six seconds, you're good, okay? Now, sometimes it's nice to have a video as well, and you'll make an unlisted YouTube video, which means nobody can see it except for people to link, and you put a link to it in the sell sheet. Maybe it's a little picture, and then it links, and they'll go to that YouTube video. Unlisted, never public, never publicly disclose your invention. Um, and and it's it's giving a little extra something, you know? Maybe it's it's pretty clear in the sell sheet, but it's just showing you using the product or something like that in the video. Other times you'll just have a video. So it's either a sell sheet and a video or just a sell sheet or just a video. It could be any of those. And there's no way of me telling you what's gonna be right without seeing your product. When our coaches talk to our students, we look at the product and we tell them what's right and they start to get a framework for the reasons why. And then in the future with their own products, they're like, oh no, this one is just gonna be a video or this one's gonna be a sell sheet. Or, you know what, I think I need both. Um, so, uh, it's really, uh, dependent on the product and it's a, it's a skill that you learn through trial and error, really. Um, so Jones said, hi, Andrew, I have a CEO and COO that are, have expressed interest in my product that rocks. I love that you guys are taking action. Uh, what should they need to know if I have a PPA, but they have signed an NDA, I didn't ask yet, huh? 
what should they need to know if I, they should need to see your sell sheet and to see your marketing piece and you need to sell the benefit of your product and you need to not worry about your PPA or the NDA. So if you file the PPA, you're good. Um, just show them. I don't know how they could express, have expressed interest. It, see, that's sometimes I get I, people like, they're like, oh, the company's interested. And I'm like, oh, they see your sell sheet. I don't know. I haven't sent that yet. I'm like, well, how do you know they're interested? So they confuse interest with somebody that said, yes, send me your marketing materials. That's not interest. That's, yes, we're open to looking at it. So I don't know if you're saying they're open to looking at it. If they've already expressed interest in your product and they have seen the benefit of your product and seen your marketing, well, then you need to get on the phone with them. Don't make the mistake of that, that inventor earlier we talked to that just started sending them emailing back and forth. Get on the freaking phone and talk to them. That's what you need to do. Now, at most companies, the CEO and CEO are pretty busy people. Now, if it's a smaller company, you might get on the phone with you, but they're not the right people to begin with. Usually a marketing manager, a little lower level at a bigger company that can keep moving the project forward. CEOs and COOs don't move things forward. They get other people to do it. So, but if they're open to it, meet with them. If they're open, if, if you want to suggest, should I meet with you or somebody else? But I like to take some time, talk about it. You're telling me they're interested. Get on the freaking phone and talk to them and ask them if it should be them or somebody else. If they want to send it to a marketing manager and marketing manager get on with you, fantastic. Ask them what works for them. Okay. A smaller company, it might be them. Real big company, they might have the time, you know. But you, you, if they've shown interest and they've seen your product and seen the marketing, that's interest. If they haven't, they're not interested. They're just saying they're open to looking at it, okay? So that's not so much a comment, um, Jones, on you. I just see that pattern. So when I make these comments sometimes, it's not necessarily about your particular question. It's about patterns that I see, mindsets that are incorrect that I see inventors get in. And so you guys can learn from that. Um, Let's see. John said, okay, good. Do, 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 do. Uh, Paul said, what is the standard royalty rate for toys and does it vary by the size of the company? Um, yeah, it does. And so like, I'll, you know, I give this talk over and over again, but it's an important thing. People get obsessed about the royalty rate, but it's three things. They say this all the time. It's the royalty rate, the price of the product, the $0.99 cent product, the $500 product, very relevant, and the volume they can sell. So it's really, it's not irrelevant what your royalty rate, but it's irrelevant unless you have those other figures. And without talking to them, engaging with them, you don't know what kind of volume they can sell. So you should never give a royalty rate. But so common royalty, I would say is 5%. But I've seen companies like Hasbro offer on their public portal, which is ridiculously low, like a one and a half percent which is like crazy low. I wouldn't say that's typical, but um, you know, but it's all relevant. If it, let's say it's a really big toy company and they're willing to give you only 3%, which is not, you know, in most industries, I would say 5% is the most common royalty rate. Should you guys go blurting out 5% when they say what you're looking for? Hell no, don't do that. You need to know that there's other factors. You need to know what kind of volume they're going to sell and what's the price point of the product, right? So if they're like, are they going to sell half a million units? Are they going to sell 50 units? Are they going to sell 5,000 units, 50,000 units? And so you can calculate your royalties based on the price of the product, a royalty rate, let's say 5%, and then the volume being sold. So let's say they're like, oh, we're going to sell 2 million of these things. And you're like, oh, crap. Yeah, I'm good with 3%. You know, um, So it's all relevant. But in most industries, the most common, don't go blurting it out because I'm doing you a disservice by telling you. 5% is a very common royalty rate if you go blurt it out. So don't interview them about the product. Never, ever do that, okay? I, I just feel like very strongly I have to say that because I'm doing you a disservice if I don't. Um, but yeah, it can be lower with toys because it can be really high volume. But if it's a small little toy company, maybe you should be getting six or seven, you know? But if it's like a really big toy company and they're going to offer you three and sell a million units a year, you know, you'd be very happy with three. So it can vary tremendously. And it depends. You should kind of figure out what you think they think the potential is for it, you know? Um, so I love that question, guys. Sometimes it sounds like I'm angry. I'm just like trying to get your attention so you so you listen, you know, which I think you guys are all here. So you want to, right? Um, Rafat, hi, Andrew. Thank you for your time and energy and passion. 
Um, do you offer a consultation to service do you, if you figure out the product has a uh, potential? So, um, you know, I, I, I don't, we don't want to take on students as we don't want to take you on. If you're like, I have this one idea and I never want to do this again. Most of our students are like, I got this one idea I'm really focused on. I want you to make sure I do and say everything right. And I go, well, that's great. Do you have other ideas? And some people go, oh yeah, I got a hundred. Or yeah, I got five others. Or you know, I come up with ideas all the time. I don't actually have any off the top of my head, but yeah, I want I want to learn how to license so that with I can focus on this product, but now I'm gonna learn the process and I'm gonna apply it to other products in the future. So um, when we guide our students, when they come on with the coach, we're gonna interview the student about what research they've done. It's almost never sufficient. The coach is going to say, well, I want you to go out and find this and this and this. Bring it back to me. We're going to decide together. And so sometimes it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense given all the other products in the space of the invention. Other times you're like, mm, you know, I think it has a benefit. I need a little extra something. Let's, let's, let's tweak it a bit. All right. And then occasionally it's like, I just don't see it here. You're going to have to reinvent what this is. But you've been thinking quite a bit about it. So why not just completely reinvent? Because now you've studied the space of the, the inventions already in and reinvent something in the space, you know? So it's pretty rare that we have to tell a student like this is just a complete loss. Um, but sometimes that happens and then you need to move on to another product. So um, you need to look at everything in the space of your invention, Rafat. Uh, we do have, we only do this one time. So first of all, the word uh, you didn't call us this. You said consultation. But the word consultant is a dirty word to me because what that means is consultant means string you along for more billable hours and make you dependent on us. That's what consultant means. I'm being a little cynical. It's not all consultants are like that. But coach, mentor, teacher, we're to guide you, empower you so that you can figure out things yourself in the future and you can become empowered and you don't need to be dependent on anybody. Right. You can get advice, but you're not dependent on anybody. So. Now we do have something called a kickstart, which is a 90 minute call. And so a coach could guide you. Now, if you haven't done any research, you know, now if you did a bunch of research, you found everything you could and you presented it to a coach during that one 90 minute session, we can do that kickstart call. So you could go on our website, book a consult with one of our advisors, which will talk to you about the kickstart call. And then they, could, they wouldn't be advising you. They would just be setting you up to sell you the kickstart call. Now, we only do that once. We don't do hourly consulting because we haven't found it works well at all. Now, the kickstart calls are great, though. We only do it once for anybody. And we actually credit that 90 minutes towards the full-on coaching, the six-month coaching program, if you want to upgrade to that. And it's not a tease. I would say 50% of um, people that sign up for that end up doing the coaching. They're like, oh, crap. Yeah, I need you guys. And the other 50%, oh, my God, this is amazing. And they don't end up um, upgrading, but they were like, it's amazing. I can only remember one guy and his take on it completely off that ever complained about the Kickstart call. So yes, Rafat, you can go to our contact us page, book a, an appointment with one of our advisors and ask about the Kickstart call and you can do that. But we don't do then another one, another one, another one, because we don't believe hourly consulting works. We know it doesn't work, but it can give you a Kickstart and help you figure things out. And if you ever wanted to upgrade to our coaching, you could apply that money towards the coaching. Um, okay. Um, Artisim says, good luck to all you inventors. Hope your ideas takes take off and you get credit and wealth. You know, I, I, I think that, I don't know. I think most inventors, I don't think they're looking for credit. I think inventors, most inventors are like artists. You just want to be, Appreciate it if that's what you mean by 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 credit art artism artism is your name. Um, it's like if you're an artist and you're you'll say you paint or sculpt and and you want to see your product in your your paintings in museums and in people's hallways, right? And that just feels great that people can enjoy what your your creation. It's the same thing with with inventors. Inventors are product artists. You want to see your products in store shelves and in people's hands. You want to see people enjoying them. So you see positive reviews about it, and that's amazing. And I've found you know if you do what you love. Um, the money will come. And it's a total cliche, but it's so true. Um, it, the inventors that I've seen, which is not many, actually, it's very rare that I see an inventor purely driven by money. 
Um, they're more driven by their own creativity and their desire to bring their product to market. Um, it just happened to them one day. And yeah, they want to make money too. But if you do what you love, the money will come. Inventors that are purely driven by money, I don't find them to be successful. When you're driven by both, yes. And I don't find that most inventors are going to become wealthy. You wrote wealthy off of one product. I mean, let's say a product is earning you 100000 a year in royalties and it sells for five years. Well, that's $500,000 over five years. But is that wealthy? But another product may earn you $25,000 a year for five years. What is that? $125,000. But then you license another product and that other product's earning $50,000. It really depends. Um, so to think that you're going to become wealthy or become a millionaire with one product, does it happen for some people? Yes. Does it happen for, for most? No, you're going to license multiple products most of this time. The thought that you're going to become a millionaire overnight with one product. Now, let's say it's earning you 200000 a year and it's selling for five years and sales even start to go up. Is that going to end up being over a million dollars? Yeah, but it's not overnight. It's not get rich quick. So um, we're very careful about selling. We, we do not sell get rich quick. And I don't want to coach an inventor that wants that because they won't stick with it. But when it's part of who you are and you're coming up with ideas and you're driven by your creativity and your desire that this is a cool product, you want to get it out there, that's going to keep you moving forward more than the money in most situations. You know, but when you have both, that's a killer combo. You want to make money and you want to get your products out in the world. Killer combo. Um, uh, William said, after licensing a product, is it best to keep in touch with the sales department, marketing department, or some other person? Absolutely it is. You know, and sales is amazing because they'll tell you what's really going on. Sometimes the marketing will give you a different take. I keep in touch with them too. And you should know what, what's going on so you can have an opportunity to help. Maybe you can give them a, a thought or two on, you know, they could change this or that, or you talk to a salesperson, they're talking about a, a perception problem that some of their buyers are having. And you go back to the marketing person and go, Hey, just a suggestion, just, you know, and you're very helpful. You're not being bossy. You're telling them what they have to do. Just a, just a thought I heard from Bob in sales that some customers were saying this. Maybe you could address it a little different like this in the packaging or maybe just the way sales is selling it. Um, and so if you're just helpful and they truly see that and you're not nagging them, but you're just trying to be helpful, most of them will appreciate that. And if you don't stay in touch with them, you don't know that's going on. You know, so absolutely. I love that question, William. You should absolutely stay in touch. It's going to vary by company. Some are like just, wow, we just eaten up anything you share with us. Others are a little standoffish. But if you almost every company, if they license a product from you, you got like the next version, a product line extension. They want to see that. Almost everybody wants to see that. Sometimes all these little suggestions here or there might irritate them a little bit. And if you sense that that's the case, then then back off. Now, especially if they're doing well, right? But if there's if they're suffering, eh, maybe you like be a little pushy, be a little bit more, eh, you know, if they're like barely beating your minimum guarantees where you are almost going to have the right to take the product back if they don't start selling more, then maybe it's okay to be a little bit little bit more, you know, hey, I really think you should give this a shot kind of thing. So William, I love that question. That's going pro fantastic thing to do. Stay in touch with the marketing people, mostly the person you license to, but sales, man, they'll tell you all sorts of stuff. Oh yeah. Oh, you're the inventor of that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. You know, this is what people are saying. I'm having a hard time like selling them on this. And you're like, Oh, maybe you give them some tips one-on-one. Got to be careful about that, you know, but um, I love that. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, James said, can you expand on guaranteed minimum royalties? Um, it's pretty simple. They got to sell a certain amount every quarter. Otherwise, it gives you the right to take it back. It's almost always a fraction of what you know that they can sell. They'll freak out if they see these too big a minimum guarantees, and then you can just pull it back from them. What inventor in the right mind would want to do that if it's selling well? But um, it's, a very, it's, it's a very small number quarterly that if they don't sell that minimum amount, they still need to pay the royalties on that. You don't want those to be so big. Trust me, they don't want to be paying you royalties on a product that's not selling. So if the minimum guarantee is 10,000 units per quarter, 
and you're they're, they're only selling five and they have to pay you for royalties on 5,000 units that they're not selling, they don't want to do that very long. So that's why you don't want to set it too high. But also let's say they stop selling it completely. And for some reason, and you're like, now they have to pay you on, and this is a random number, guys, 10,000 units per quarter. Trust me, they don't want money to be going out for nothing. So that's just one way, the most prominent way of guaranteeing that they need to sell a certain amount every quarter so they just don't sit on it. This perception that companies want to, and I hear this often, and I think in some rare instances it might have been true, but it's so rare. Like, oh, I'm so afraid that a company is going to try to license it and just sit on it. And I'm like, well, that's your damn fault if you were so stupid not to have some guarantees you can get out of it. Why would you ever license a product to a company without an escape clause? You know, and and I've met inventors that weren't invent rights students that did that. I've met inventors that told me they licensed a product and I asked them, so where does your manufacturer sell? And they couldn't tell me. I'm like, how did you do a licensing deal? You don't even know where they're selling. And now you're complaining to me that they're not paying you any royalties. I'm like, you did not you do your due diligence even remotely. So I'm telling you guys that story. Don't be that inventor. That's just craziness. They're so happy that a company was interested in their product. They literally didn't know where they were going to sell because if you know where they're going to sell, you can kind of figure out their minimum guarantees and go, okay, I'm going to make these really small. But if they don't sell this much, they're not going to want to continue to pay me on this. So it's going to guarantee that if you hand it back to me, right? But it just blows me away that some inventors have done deals not knowing. I'm like, what stores are they selling? I don't know. I don't know. They're big. I'm like, what? Just Google the name of some of their products and you'll see what stores they're selling in. It's like, are you kidding me? So I I don't know. Steve and I have been talking about this lately. I don't understand why inventors think they can do licensing without guidance. I don't get it. Like you don't learn how to play football without guidance. You don't learn how to be a plumber or an attorney or do anything without guidance. And so why is inventing and licensing any different? Why are people just making this stuff up? Like why didn't why don't they think that there isn't some sort of checklist you have to go through to do a licensing deal? Why don't you think you need to get training on that? It just it blows me away. Now, I'm, I'm speaking to the converted because you guys are spending an hour listening to me ramble. So you guys are probably like, no, I'm on board with that, Andrew. That's why I'm here. So I'm probably not really speaking to you guys, but it, it just blows me away that other inventors will go spend 10 grand on a patent, yet they balk at a few bucks to have somebody guide them and show them how to do everything right so they can be licensing like somebody that's been licensing for decades and be that much of a pro. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. It still doesn't to this day. Um, uh, let's see. Carlos said, how do you keep track that you're getting paid correctly through licensing? That's a good question. So one, you, we always insist that when our students, we go, you need a lot of the auditing clause. So you can audit a company. Um, can I recall of a single student that's ever audited one of their potential licensees? No, but you want to be able to do that if you think something really stinks, something is wrong. But one of the things is do what we talked about earlier, talk to their sales staff um, and, and see how it's selling. You know, And also, if it's selling at brick and mortar, you can go, oh, they're in 30,000 Walmarts and they're in 10,000 Rite Aids and doesn't, if it's like not selling one unit per week in brick and mortar retailers, they're going to pull it from the shelf. So if you're like, why are my royalties so low? It looks like they're paying Walmart. It's in all those stores, yet I'm getting royalty checks like they're only selling one a month when I know they're selling more than that. Now, I've never seen that happen personally. Um, So it's an anomaly. Um, I did talk to one student, actually, I remember. He's like, they're not, I know they're not paying me right. Because he was talking to the salespeople. I do remember that once. It was for a pet product. I'm not going to name the name of the company, of course. And he ended up pulling the, the, the agreement, the licensing agreement, and he went to somewhere else. But that's just so rare. I, God, you know, worry about doing a deal. Don't get worried about getting paid. Um, if you do Google the company and you see all sorts of complaints about them and you see that they're unethical, like don't do a deal with them, you know? So before a way to prevent that is to do your research on a company, see if they have a good reputation. Uh, what is this about? Uh, Frontline Strong says, with all that's going on these days, 
Is it even worth trying to pitch your idea to any company? I don't know what you mean by that front line. I mean, during COVID, we had more students than ever licensing products. Um, so companies need products more than ever. The turnover of new products these days is, is, is numbing. It's just, it's so fast and companies need new products very fast and they quite often can't develop new, enough new products internally as fast as they need them. So I have no idea what you're talking about. Now, it's not all roses here. What we found during COVID, we're still in COVID, right? Um, is that it's taking longer for companies to do deals with companies. So they need to get quotes overseas quite often for the ones overseas. And it's taking way longer to get those quotes back because they want to verify they can make this and make it at a reasonable price, your product, right? So that's taking longer. So those deals are taking longer to do. And then when our students are doing deals and they did more deals during the height of COVID, I don't know, whatever you want to call the height from before, the prior heights than before. Now it's taking them longer to launch new products because it's taking longer to tool up overseas and get the products manufactured. And then there had all these shipping issues. So our students are still doing the deals. I'm not seeing those deals fall off, but it's taking longer for them to get to market. And it's going to take longer for you to get royalties. So it's not all perfect, but are our students doing deals now? Are inventors doing more deals now than before? It was what I'm seeing with our students because our students know what they're doing. Yes. So it's a great time to be licensing. So with all that's going on, I think you're, you're, you have a dramatic misperception. Um, but it's, I'm not going to say it's all roses, taking longer for the products to get to market because of the shipping issues. I think that should be quite a bit better in a year. The shipping companies are just milking and just putting the screws to manufacturers these days. People, some people were paying four or $5,000 for a, a container from Asia. Now they're paying twenty to $29,000. It's ludicrous. Um, and that's just tough. And But I see that getting better, um, quite a bit better in eight to 10 months. It still might be higher than it was before. I think they're realizing, well, we can get it, so we'll just keep charging it. But there is, if you read about the supply chain issues, I think it's intentional in a lot of ways at this point. And I think they'll get better. Um, I think we do have some supply chain issues. But you're going to, if the company's selling the product, you're going to eventually get royalties on it when it hits the market, if it just takes longer to hit the market. So I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but I'm glad you asked it because I bet a lot of other people were thinking the same thing. So it's a great question. Um, okay. Uh, Masood said, uh, hi, Andrew. I think they'll make this my last question. When licensing, which party decides on the product pricing if done by the licensor? What, what's a good price margin for electrical products? So, you know, you can't dictate, you can, but it'd be stupid, to a company what price they should sell it at because the market's going to dictate that. And they're going to try to get as much money as they can. So when you base... Most of the time, you're going to base your royalty rate on the wholesale price. So it's the price they sell to the retailer for because that's easy to track. If you need to audit them, you can see clearly they sold it to Walmart or Target or whoever for this price. You can't track retail price because it's just sales bon bonanzas these days. Everything's on sale, clearance, this or that. You can't track that. But you can track wholesale price, the price that the company you licensed to sold it to the retailer for. So you're not dictating to them what price it's going to be sold at. Now, having a discussion about it. So if you think they're like dramatically off or you're not OK with it, I think it's very important. But if you're generally OK with it, that's the price you're going to get the royalty on. So and it may go up and down over the years and you're going to get more or less based on if they get more or less. So that if hopefully that makes sense. So I thought that was an excellent question. Um, I, I don't know if I've gotten that one in a really long time. Um, we got so many great questions here. Okay, so as usual, um, yeah, as usual, I can't answer all of them. The uh, if if you're like hey, Andrew, but I didn't get you didn't answer my question. Well, I, I talked for a full freaking hour. So next time, show up earlier. I did them pretty much in order, and you're like copy your question down and. And then try to answer it more at the top of the hour. And you're more likely that I'm going to answer it. But I, I went a full hour. Um, so I'm going to ask a favor of you. You know, there's a, a lot of people on here 
going to ask you a favor. I spent a whole hour of my time. The only thing I ask of you is if you're not subscribed, subscribe to the InventRight channel. Click on the subscribe button. Nothing happens when you're subscribed on YouTube. It'll just get our subscriber rate up. We'd like I'd like to get to 80,000 subscribers within the next four or five months. I think I don't know where we're at right now, 50 something. Um, so help me out. Also watch our videos, give us a thumbs up as many videos as you can. If you're enjoying the videos, if you don't like a particular one, don't give that one a thumbs up, okay? But that's the two ways, subscribe to our channel, watch a ton of our videos. We have, I think almost 700 videos now and they're all free. We're not pitching our coaching or mentoring in there every two minutes. It's very good advice, okay? So hopefully you guys felt that was helpful. Um, if you have any thank yous, you can type them into the, into the chat as well. And I remind everybody to take care and keep inventing and I'll catch up with you guys next time. See ya. Bye.